Good morning, Grace family. How are we doing this morning? Good, good. As Dan said, my name is Adam. If I haven't had the pleasure and privilege of meeting you, I look forward to hopefully right after service. Uh, Stephen Covey has a book called Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. In it, he shares uh, a personal story how he was in New York uh, and he was on a subway train. He made his way onto the cart and found a comfortable seat and began observing those around him. There were others reading the newspaper, some people with earbuds in, kind of keeping to themselves. It was a rather calm, peaceful ride. A few stops later entered a young family. It was a dad along with uh, his son and daughter. And as they entered, uh, the cab got a little bit louder. The kids were a little rambunctious, and they began kind of messing with people's newspaper, uh, screaming, fighting. The dad happened to make his way and sat right next to Stephen Covey. And uh, the dad seemed kind of unengaged and uninterested in what was going on with his kids. After a long while, uh, he decided to get a little bold because he recognized the uncomfortability of other people in the cab. And so Stephen kind of looked at the dad, got his attention and said, sir, I'm sorry to bother you, but could you please control your kids? It's like the man came out of a consciousness and he said, I'm terribly sorry. I think they have no idea how to act. I have no idea what to do. We literally just came from the hospital where we got news that their mother had passed away. He said in an instant, he went from frustration, anger, being irritable to now one of sympathy and compassion. What can I do to help you? I'm so terribly sorry. It changed the way that he thought. It changed his behavior. It changed his attitude. He had what he called a paradigm shift. Throughout this series, our hope is to look at the paradigm behind our prayer life. How do we view the way that we pray? If our prayers are quick and formulaic, maybe we should consider the manner in which we pray. If it happens to be only around meals or if we're disciplined at bedtime, what's the content of our prayers? Are they often financial concerns? Maybe our job or other circumstances that we face? Why those are not bad to pray about, they're drastically different than what we see recorded in Scripture. We have the opportunity over this series to kind of eavesdrop and listen in to a prayer that Paul prayed for a group of people in Ephesus. And I find it interesting and challenging of what Paul didn't pray for. In a culture very hostile to Christianity, He didn't pray that this group of people would avoid persecution, that they would have a comfortable life. Many people were probably sick and dealing with significant struggles, but he didn't pray for healing or for happiness or for their circumstances to get better. Tim Keller in his book on prayer says, 
When you look at, as a whole, all of Paul's writings, never once does he make an appeal for prayer related to the people's circumstances that he's praying for. So what we see is we're unpacking over the course of these four weeks truths and principles behind how Paul prayed. Because I know embracing these truths for me and for you leads us to pray very differently. We're in Ephesians chapter one. Follow along, app or on the screen. Starting in verse 15. For this reason, he's talking about everything he wrote in verses one through 14 that they are God's treasured possession, that they've been adopted into God's family, that they are sealed by his Holy Spirit. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord and your love for all God's people, I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I love the selflessness. Paul is deeply in love with this group of people. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I love the purpose of what he's praying for. What he finds most urgent is that they would experientially know God. Not just from a knowledge standpoint, but they would personally understand the intimacy and relationship that is available to them. He goes on, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which you've called. The hope that is centered on a certainty, that is an anchor for their soul. He's praying that they would embrace and understand this hope. That's what we've talked about over the previous two weeks. I'd encourage you to go online and listen if you didn't have the opportunity to be with us. The riches of his glorious inheritance in his people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That's what we want to unpack this morning, his incomparably great power for us who believe. I think within many of us is a strong desire to have power. I know from a young age, I was a big fan of He-Man Masters of the Universe, okay? He-Man was amazing. He had, uh, you know, amazing strength. He could grab mountains and icebergs and throw them at their desired target. He had uh, supersonic speed. He had indestructible skin, and he wielded what was known as the power sword. Sword of Grayskull. It could deflect lightning bolts, right? And I loved He-Man. I had the figurines, and I begged and pleaded my parents for my own power sword. So I received it, and this power sword never left my side. For about a two-year span, you would see the sword in my back everywhere I went. I slept with this sword. Here's a picture of me and the sword. This is uh, me as uh, blonde hair, maybe five, six-year-old, right? I carried this sword everywhere for two years. My mom tells me the story that she was in a department store pushing me around on a shopping cart, and an elderly lady came up to her and was like, I am so sorry that your son has back issues. She's like, he does not have back issues. He might have head issues, but... (laughs) He just won't get rid of the sword, right? 
And everywhere I went, I carried around, and occasionally, uh, you may encounter me pulling out the sword and yelling, He-Man, masters of the universe, I have the power, right? Because I wanted to possess this power that He-Man had. And what Paul is saying is that there is an incomparably great power to those who believe. So what is Paul talking about here in this passage? He goes on to describe this power that's made available. He says that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. The greatest power that the earth has ever seen is not when atomic bombs were dropped on Japan. It's not in a volcano or a tornado or a hurricane. Rather, it was 2,000 years ago when God raised Jesus from the grave. And he ascended and he emplaced him on his throne. This power should blow our mind knowing that we have the same access to that power that raised Jesus from the dead. I think the first paradigm that influences the way that you and I pray is that I will pray different knowing I possess resurrection power. That there is enough spiritual power in this room that could put Niagara Falls to shame. Paul uses this Greek word called dunamis. And dunamis is used around 120 times in the New Testament. And that's where we get the word dynamite. What he's saying is that you and I have this dynamite power to change and transform our lives. This same power that was able to raise Jesus from the dead, spiritually speaking, is able to do the same thing for you and I. He goes on to explain that in Ephesians 2, directly after that passage about his prayer. He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of air. Romans says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That we're stuck, that we are dead in our sins. All of us who lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace that you have been saved. Resurrection power moves me from death to life. This power that is available to those who believe is the power to cancel our past. The power to pay our debt in full. It's not denying the past, but it's God offsetting our past with his past work. God says that it's unnecessary for us to go walk around with a heavy load of guilt, with carrying memories and mistakes, because in Colossians 2, it says that he has forgiven 
and paid our debt in full by nailing Christ to the cross. Jesus knows the things that he, that we have done wrong, but he didn't come to rub them in. Rather, he came to rub them out. He didn't come to condemn us. He came to change us. He was hung up for our hangups. He was crucified so that we could stop crucifying ourselves. In believing the power of the resurrection is that God can grant that same forgiveness to you and I. That there is nothing that we can do to earn. It is in God's grace who's rich in mercy, who's able to take us dead and stuck in our sin and raise us new. That therefore anyone who's in Christ, he's a new creation. Think of it like this. My kids have an etch-a-sketch. That we can take the etch-a-sketch of our life and make a horrific design. We mess it up, right? We get our hands involved too much. But God can take that, shake it, and make it new. Doesn't mean that we're not informed by the past, but we don't have to hold the past against us. We can live in freedom knowing that God has granted us salvation, not because we can do anything, because it's a mighty work of himself. I believe that many of us are comfortable embracing and understanding the work of God and the power that he makes available through salvation. But I believe too many of us don't tap into the power that's available for transformation. The power that we're able to use to overcome our struggle with sin, to overcome our fight against temptation. He says that for those who place their faith in Christ, you never have to feel defeated. You can always have hope that God's mighty power is at work, bringing, working about towards our completion that we would resemble Christ. There's a man in our church family that has allowed me to share his story. Chosen to share it anonymously. He was a young boy and he lived in a rather impoverished uh, area. When they received the Sears catalog, they anxiously looked through. And from a young age, they began to kind of take notice of the lingerie section. That kind of started a thoughtful pattern that at that time, he didn't have much avenue to pursue it. Well, at age 17, he enrolled in the military. And what was hard to come by was readily available and accessible. So magazines were at his disposal. Conversations, environments, outings were heavily encouraged. In the midst of difficulty and loneliness, this became an easy outlet for him. And what started as initial lustful passion, desire, became a full-blown addiction. He would leave the military after four years, came home, met a lovely woman. They got hitched, they got married. A few years into their marriage, she discovered his secret addiction. The way he talks about it, he can remember that like it was yesterday. The confusion, the pain, the hurt, 
the disappointment that she expressed. He said the way he felt was always different, that there was something in between them, that they lacked this intimacy. He was a truck driver. They had kids, but he was on the road often. He had time and availability to continue in this cycle of addiction that just dropped him deeper in guilt and shame and despair. Years later, they'd get their first computer. Now they had another access and avenue to continue in this addiction. For 50 years, he lived with this addiction that haunted him. He couldn't walk with freedom and hope. Through the resurrection power of Christ, through a group of people walking with him through his passionate pursuit of purity with his wife standing by him, he was able to have hope. And for five, six years now, he's experienced the freedom from the bondage that enslaved his life. He knows that that temptation is around the corner, right? That he cautiously and confidently needs to always be tapped in to the power that's made available to him. I know in a room this size that statistics are staggering. That two-thirds of the Christian men struggle on some level with pornography. It's not even just gender, that around 30% of women struggle as well. The younger you get, the more readily that this struggle might be. The average age of exposure to pornography is 11 years old. I know from a brain aspect, it rewires our brain, much like struggles with addiction. But there is hope beyond despair. There is power made available that we can even overcome the deepest and darkest struggles, but it's not in our own power. It's in this resurrection power that is made available to you and I. This resurrection power makes the impossible possible. In Romans 8, it says that we face difficulties and struggles and uncertainty, but that we are more than conquerors through Christ, that we can have power for godly living. That resurrection powers believing God can rescue me from any addiction, whether that is a struggle with drugs, alcohol, or sex. Resurrection powers believing God can give me hope, even amidst a struggle with depression or mental illness. Resurrection powers believing God can heal communities that have a struggle with gang violence, police brutality. Resurrection powers believing God has given me the ability to extend forgiveness even through some of the most heinous of acts committed against me. Resurrection power is believing God can save my loveless marriage. No matter how much hurt, pain, frustration, or anger, that God can redeem and restore my marriage. Resurrection power is believing that God has given me the ability to love when I'd rather hate, the ability to forgive when I'd rather fight, the ability to serve when I'd rather punish. 
Resurrection power is believing that no one is too far from God. Family members, friends, co-workers, that God's power is available and able to do a mighty work in them. I think the question for you and I is, do I rely on my own strength or do I live by the power that's made available inside of me? Makes me think of Peter Parker. Peter was uh, a rather nerdy, uh, shy, awkward kid, but he was bitten uh, by a spider. The the spider uh, had been genetically modified. And he went home that night, fell asleep, and the next day he woke with perfect vision, with muscular tone, with wrists that would emit web strings, right? Because he now had Spider-Man powers. He went to save Mary Jane, to rescue others. He would learn to scale walls, to climb tall buildings, to jump back and forth. Now, after Peter Parker had this incident that changed his life, it would be foolish for Peter to encounter difficult circumstances and not think of the power that was made available to him through Spider-Man. If he resorted and went back to think what Peter could accomplish. The same thing is true of us, that often we are not tapped in and rely to the source of power that God has made available to us, that we don't have to live in despair or defeat, that God can do a mighty work immeasurably more than we ask or imagine. That power that you and I possess for those who confess, literally agree with who God says he is and who God says I am, have this power that's made available to them. Paul goes on to further describe the extent and authority with which this power is given. In verse 20, it says, he exerted when he, he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power, dominion, and every name that's invoked, not only in this present age, but in the one to come. Paul, throughout the book of Ephesians and the rest of his writings, firmly believed in the unseen spiritual reality, the unseen spiritual realm. And Paul here is alluding to this kind of what commentators think a gradation of demonic rank. He's saying that Jesus has all authority over even uh, the most significant or supreme demonic influences. And what we see in the end of Ephesians as Paul is writing this conclusion is he's reminding you and I of the battle that we have jumped into, the battle that we face daily. And he says it this way in Ephesians 6, he says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. I think this understanding and paradigm with which we see ourselves drastically changes the way that we pray. I will pray different knowing I'm a part of an invisible war. 
Jesus in his ministry was often related to the demonic. He described his ministry as setting, bringing liberty to the captives, setting the captives free. Paul refers to the believer's life as a struggle, as a fight, as warfare. We operate differently in wartime versus times of peace. We celebrated Monday, Veterans Day. You can ask any veteran that when they are in active duty, they're on high alert. They live with a sense and a consciousness and an understanding that attacks could be at any point. The manner in which we live and the urgency with which we live is drastically different in wartime versus times of peace. C.S. Lewis says, when it comes to the demonic, people usually fall into one of two errors. Either they take them too seriously or they do not take him seriously enough. Maybe you know Christians in one of those two categories. Maybe you can find yourself in one of those two categories. That people who through every inconvenient circumstance, may attach Satan to it. But there's other people who have an indifference and a lack of uh, just awareness or even um, a realm that this could exist, right? I love how J.D. Greer states it when he's talking about this context. He says, Satan is not after our recognition, but rather our destruction, right? He doesn't necessarily care what we think about him, right? His goal is to destroy us, to lead us into bondage. We're told in scripture to flee from sexual immorality. We're told to flee from the love of money. But when it comes to the demonic, we're not told to flee. We're rather told to stand firm but not in our own power, but in the mighty power that God has made available. Look at Ephesians 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggles, not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world, the spiritual forces of evil. Therefore, put on the full armor of God So when that day, the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything, stand. I think the truth and the reality is that God has given us everything we need to fight in this battle. That I've been empowered to defeat the enemy. I think the thing that we must understand about this battle is that this battle is very unconventional. I like to think of it this way. In John 8, Jesus described Satan as the father of lies. That it is his native language, that he can do nothing else other than lie. Satan loves to tell us lies about ourself, our family, people around us, the world that we live in. That means his chief target is our mind. Because if he can influence thinking, he can influence behavior. 
And what we allow and what we fight for in terms of our mind is of significant importance. Because Satan bombards our minds with cleverly devised patterns of nagging thoughts, doubts, suspicions, wonderings, reasons, and theories. He deliberately works diligently to set up enemy camps, to set up strongholds in our mind, these incorrect thinking patterns that lead us towards destruction. Whether that stronghold is a superstitious belief, a wrong thought, lying, stealing, pride, materialism, bitterness, wrath, anger, slander, malice, unforgiveness, disappointment, feelings of rejection, negative self-image, a lack of sexual purity, despair. It's something that consumes our mental and emotional strength. But that stronghold doesn't have to be the end of the story. We're told that we have access to power to demolish and destroy those strongholds. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 talks about this war that we find ourselves in. It says, it's a war that we're not, a war that the world does not know about. That the weapons that we have, they won't do for this war. But on the contrary, the weapons that God has given us have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension. Pretension is just thoughts that are seen as superior or more important than what God has revealed. That this power to demolish strongholds over every argument and pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we can take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. That once we begin to understand the schemes of the devil and to be aware of what our subconscious mind is thinking, we can begin to destroy and take down the lies that Satan so deeply wants to believe. Lies that we tell ourselves. Lies that I have to be perfect. That everyone has to agree with me that I can't shake my past, that I must be happy, that I deserve better than this. Lies that the world tells us. Just follow your heart. Let emotions be your guide. That I'm only human. Everyone else does this. Lies that distort the gospel. I must earn God's love. I can just live my life in such a way, and God will forgive me. If I were more spiritual, I wouldn't struggle like this. If I only serve him, obey him, maybe even give towards his work, God will make my life comfortable. Lies from questions we ask ourselves. Has God abandoned me? Why has God not stopped this pain? When we can begin to understand the lies that we so easily believe and live our life under, we can begin to walk into his truth, to allow the knowledge of God to saturate our lives in such a way that we can begin to see the inconsistencies in the manner, in the way in which you and I think. 1 Peter 5.8 says, be alert and of sober mind. Sober mind just means to be free of intoxicating influence. 
free outside of any dangerous force or outside influence. Be alert, sober mind, because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Right? What I learned from that passage is that Satan is of the cat family. So if you don't like cats, just joking, right? But he is a devil roaring like a roaring lion looking to prowl. He's a hunter. He's after us to destroy us. He would want nothing else than our destruction. You and I, we must be alert to the tactics of the enemy. In Ephesians 6, it concludes with the armor of God. And I think it's easy to think through, uh, I think of my experience in Sunday school where you had this flannel graph and you're trying to discern and decipher aspects of the, uh, the armor of God, right? There's a lot of repetitive themes in there. The helmet of salvation and the shield of faith are not drastically different. What I think Paul is doing is as he's concluding this letter, he is stating that the gospel should take part over every aspect of our life. That where the gospel has fortified us, Satan cannot attack us. Right? That he has given us, empowered us in this attack. That we have his sword, the word of God, as the onslaught against Satan's attack. So we fight back with the truth and the knowledge of what God has revealed to us. And we begin to think not how we see ourselves, not how others see us, but rather what God says about us. That I am his child. That I am redeemed from the hand of the enemy. That I am redeemed from the curse of the law. That I have authority over the power of darkness. That I can be delivered from the power of darkness. That I'm kept in safety wherever I go. That I'm a new creation. That I'm a divine project, not an abandoned project. That I am saved by grace through faith. That I do all things through Christ who gives me strength. That I'm an heir of eternal life. That I am more than a conqueror. That I begin to saturate my mind in who God says I am not in who I think I am or who others tell me. Because the reality is that when we submit ourselves to God, we can resist the devil. James 4 says that once we place ourselves under the authority of God, once we allow him to determine our direction, our response then we are empowered in a way to resist the devil. To stand firm in his mighty power. And he will flee. That we don't have to live in this constant state of fear. That the power God has given us can overcome the deepest and darkest struggles we may encounter. That God has given us this resurrection power. As Paul concludes in this section on the armor of God, he gives us a weapon that is always available to us in this war. He says in Ephesians 6.18, he says, And pray in the Spirit on all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. 
I'd like you to write this down. I defend attacks with conversational prayer. A prayerful life is a powerful life. A prayerless life is a powerless life. It's not prayer that's power, but it's the person attached to the prayers that I pray. Because we're tapped into the source of power that God has given us. It is through him who gives me strength. That we fight in this warfare, but we fight on our knees. We fight when we pray. Philippians 4, 6 says, do not be anxious. In every circumstance and situation we encounter, do not live with anxiety. But rather, we present our request, right? Our prayers and petitions. We interrupt heaven constantly with gratitude and with thanksgiving for what God has given us. Verse six is our part. Verse seven is God's promise. In the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, beyond logic, beyond comprehension, will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That no matter what circumstance or situations that we encounter, we can have hope. That we can be an overcomer. That we don't have to live defeated. Colossians 2.15 says, speaking about Jesus, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Satan is alive and active. There's a battle going on all the time around us. But we can have confidence that Jesus has overcome sin, death, and the grave. That he has given you and I that same power to live in response. That we don't have to go searching for the power that is made available for those who believe in him. Warren Wearsby in his book, Be Rich, talks about um, a wealthy newspaper publisher. His name was William Randolph Hearst. He loved to collect fine art collections. He heard about this description of a particular art collection that he just had to have. So he sent his agent on a journey to find this particular art collection. This journey took him overseas. It took him months to find He came back to William Randolph Hearst and reported back, I've found your art collection. I found it in your warehouse. The treasures that he had so desperately desired were readily available to him. I think the same thing is true for you and I. For those that have placed our faith in the finished work of Christ, we have access today to that resurrection power that empowers us to live differently, that empowers us to think differently about ourselves, about our circumstances, our struggles, our situations. We can live with hope. We can live with confidence. We can live with assurance. Not living out of our own strength, but tapped into the source of unlimited strength that God has given you and I power that can change lives, that can change our lives, that can offer hope to others in the form of the gospel, that can change their life. The paradigm with which I see myself, my mission, the world around me 
drastically influences the way in which I pray. We will pray different with a deep sense of urgency, pleading that God would work in our lives and in the lives of others, knowing that his gospel is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine. That it's him that gets the glory, that God would use the power that's made available for you and I to declare his goodness, to declare his love for all people, and to bring people out of bondage in despair, guilt, and shame, and to allow people to live free. That is the gospel that's made available to you and I. Not of one that we've earned, but one that we've been given access to radically transform lives. Father, I pray that we would never hesitate to understand the significance of the power that you've given us through your Holy Spirit that we would firmly believe you can make the impossible possible, that you can take those who are far from you and radically work a miracle in their lives. Lord, that you can give us hope to overcome struggles and battles and temptations that we face. Lord, that we can be more than a conqueror. Lord, I thank you for the picture of your power, I thank you for the unlimited access that you've given to us because of your work through Jesus. Lord, we love you. We need you. May we embrace the power that you've made available to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.